1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. everybody and welcome to the black hand an organized crime history podcast i'm your host bliss grieve and today we're going to be doing our very first episode on tommy lucchese now if you don't know who tommy lucchese is i would say he's honestly one of my favorite italian american mobsters really ever this was a guy who was really in power for 40 years and led his family through a golden age of mob activity but you don't you don't really hear about Tommy Lucchese all that much when talking about mafia history and I've never really understood that you always hear about Carlo Gambino and Lucky Luciano and guys like that but you never hear the name Tommy Lucchese this is a guy that really perfected the craft of labor racketeering which is since since he perfected it it was a huge, huge source of income for the five families and really Italian-American crime syndicates throughout the United States. But without further ado, let's go ahead and get right into the episode. Gaetano Lucchese was born on December 1st, 1899 in Palermo, Sicily to Baldassar Lucchese and Francesca Cinquagrani. Gaetano had two brothers named Tony and Joseph, as well as a younger sister named Rose. At the age of 12 years old, in November 1911, the Lucchese family immigrated to the United States, settling in the Manhattan neighborhood of East Harlem. At the time the Lucchese family immigrated to East Harlem, it was really a hub for Italian-American immigrants, particularly Southern Italians and Sicilians with a moderate number of Northern Italians. The neighborhood became known as Italian Harlem and was the first part of Manhattan to be referred to as Little Italy. East Harlem was also the founding location of the Morello crime family. The family was founded by Giuseppe Morello, who is a member of the Corleone clan of the Sicilian Mafia, who immigrated to America in 1892 after becoming a suspect in a murder in Corleone. And in the late 1890s, Morello founded the 107th Street Mob that would become the Morello crime family, and also come to control East Harlem, Manhattan, and parts of the Bronx. Morello and his crime family were really the origin of the Italian-American Mafia in New York, with many of Morello's lieutenants going on to form the first real Mafia-like families in New York, like Salvatore Diacchia, Joe Masseria, as well as Gaetano Reina. When Gaetano Lucchese and his family arrived, that's when he began going by Thomas. It's a more Americanized version of Gaetano. Like the guy I just mentioned, Gaetano Reno, he also went by Tommy Reina. Upon the family's arrival, Tommy's father began working as a laborer hauling cement. To help his family out, Tommy started working in a munitions production factory. Children working to support their family instead of going to school was incredibly common at the time with only 9% of U.S. youth having high school diplomas in 1910. Tommy worked in the machine shop until 1915 when his hand would get caught in one of the machines, causing his right index finger to be amputated. 
By this time, Lucchese had come to know some of the local mobsters and had become friends with future underworld figures Lucky Luciano, Frank Costello, and Meyer Lansky. After his accident, Lucchese really started spending more and more time in the streets with his friends. And in 1915, Tommy Lucchese and Lucky Luciano founded the 107th Street Gang. The gang started off by stealing wallets and burglarizing stores as well as small-time gambling. The gang operated under the supervision and protection of Gaetana Reyna, who was the boss of his own family. Reyna was a former lieutenant in the Morello crime family, but split from the family along with Salvatore Diacchia to form their own organizations. Reyna's family controlled criminal operations in the Bronx as well as parts of East Harlem. In 1919, at the age of 18, Lucchese started a window cleaning company that really doubled as an extortion racket for the 107th Street Gang. Any businesses that refused his company's cleaning services would have their windows broken. But in 1920, Lucchese was arrested in Riverhead, Long Island on auto theft charges. During his booking, the arresting officer noticed Lucchese's amputated finger and compared him to a popular pitcher of the time named Mordecai Brown who also lost the same finger as Lucchese in a similar accident. The officer called him, quote, Three-Finger Tommy Brown. And although Lucchese absolutely despised the nickname, it would stick with him for the rest of his life. However, it was one of those nicknames that you would never call him to his face. But in January of 1921, Lucchese was convicted of auto theft, and on March 27, 1922, he was sentenced to three years and nine months at Sing Sing Prison in southeast New York. He would serve 13 months of his sentence before being paroled in 1923. This conviction would be Lucchese's very first and very last. By the time he was released in 1923, America was three years into alcohol prohibition, and his old friends Luciano, Costello, and Lansky had become partners with Jewish crime boss Arnold Rothstein selling bootleg alcohol. The operation became very profitable for everyone involved, and at its height it was earning $12 million a year and that's not with inflation included. And as soon as he got out, Lucchese immediately became involved in the streets again, hooking back up with his old friend Lucky Luciano and his new bootlegging business, and would really remain a strong ally to Luciano until his deportation. But he also became more involved with Gaetano Reyna's crime family and began super quickly moving up the ranks and really began learning mob rackets. In August 1927, Lucchese was arrested under the alias of Thomas Ara and charged with receiving stolen goods. However, law enforcement released him pending trial, but he never returned to stand trial. On September 25, 1927, at the age of 28, Lucchese married 19-year-old Conchetta Vassallo, also known as Catherine. On July 5, 1928, his wife Catherine gave birth to their first child, a son who he named Baldassar after his father. And on July 18, 1928, he was arrested again along with his brother-in-law, Joseph Rosado, for the murder of a local small-time hood named Luis Sarasulo. But the charges were dropped just six days later. So by this point, Lucchese had made his bones for the family and had also taken a pinch and did his time without talking, which are two giant chips on the shoulder of any mobster. And by this time, he was considered to be one of the top mobsters in the entire Reina family, along with Reina's underboss, Tommy Gagliano. But on February 26, 1930, at the age of 40 years old, Gaetano Reyna was shot in the head with a double-barreled shotgun outside his mistress's apartment in the Claremont section of the Bronx. Joe Masseria tasked Lucky Luciano with arranging the hit after Reyna's underboss, Tommy Gagliano, went to Masseria and told him that Reyna secretly reneged on an alliance he had with Masseria because Masseria started demanding large tribute payments from Reyna and he started supporting Masseria's rival, Salvatore Maranzano. Most people believe Vito Genovese did the hit, 
while some still suspect that Masseria loyalist Joseph Pinzolo is the one that carried it out. But if you ask me, I'd say it's most likely Vito Genovese. The death of Reyna was one of the main causes of the beginning of the Castellamorese War. And following the death of Reyna, Joe Masseria ignored Gagliano's good deed by warning him about Reyna's switching of alliances and backed his close supporter Joseph Pinzolo to become Reyna's replacement. Pinzolo would become boss ahead of Tommy Gagliano and Lucchese, but the two felt that Pinzolo had only really been promoted in order for Masseria to have control over the Reina family as well as his own. But Pinzolo was also just simply disagreeable, and it didn't take long before the majority of his subordinates grew to hate him. Giovanano later revealed that soon after Pinzolo took charge of the family, Gagliano and Lucchese formed a splinter group within the organization. Consigliere of the family Stefano Rondelli, Dominic Petrilli, and Joe Villaggi also joined in on the coup. And seven months after Reina's murder, Pinzolo was lured to a Manhattan office he shared with Lucchese. The two were partners in a business that supplied the raw ingredients needed for wine. Upon entering the office, Pinzolo was shot five times and died on the scene. Joe Valachi would later testify that Reina family mobster Giarlama Santucci took care of the hit. After Pinzolo's death, Tommy Gagliano became boss of the family and appointed Lucchese as his underboss. Law enforcement suspected Lucchese of being involved in the murder and issued a warrant for his arrest. On September 8, 1930, he turned himself into police, but a grand jury failed to indict him on the murder charge due to lack of evidence. By this time, Luciano had grown in power immensely and wanted to end the Castellamorese War. He began secretly negotiating with Maranzano and made a deal to arrange Joe Masseria's death in exchange for his rackets and becoming Maranzano's second-in-command. Luciano also convinced Gagliano and Lucchese to defect to Maranzano's side as well. On April 15, 1931, Joe Masseria was gunned down in a restaurant in Coney Island where he was lured by Luciano. Following the hit on Masseria, the war was over and Salvatore Maranzano reorganized what were basically Italian-American gangs into what we know today as the Five Families, with the original Five Families being led by Luciano, Gagliano, Joe Profacci, Vincent Mangano, and Maranzano himself, but Maranzano would name himself boss of all bosses and whittle down the rival family's rackets in favor of his own so he could have the ultimate power over all the families. On June 4th, 1931, Lucchese's wife Catherine gave birth to their second child who they named Francis, but by late 1931, Maranzano realized that Luciano was a threat to his power and hired Irish gangster Vincent Mad Dog Cole to take him out. Lucchese learned of the plot in advance and warned Luciano that he was marked for death. On September 10, 1931, Maranzano ordered Luciano, Frank Costello, and Vito Genovese to come to his office in Manhattan. But knowing they were marked for death, Luciano decided to act first and sent four Jewish gangsters secured by either Bugsy Siegel or Meyer Lansky to Maranzano's office. Lucchese was present to identify Maranzano, and when he did, the gangster stabbed the boss multiple times before shooting him to death. Following the hit, Luciano would organize the commission that initially included the five families as well as the Buffalo crime family headed by Stefano Magadino and the Chicago outfit. After prohibition was repealed in 1933, Lucchese saw how much money could be made by controlling the unions for a specific industry, so in the same year he formed an alliance with Jewish gangster Lepke Buckalter, who was also a member of Murder Inc., as well as his partner Jacob Shapiro who controlled unions involved with the Garment District in Midtown Manhattan. The group demanded kickback from businesses in the Garment District if they didn't want to face a strike, and they also skimmed from union dues. 
Lucchese became the preeminent garment district racketeer and ruled the lucrative textile trade with an iron fist using Murder Inc., the enforcement arm of the five families, to control his interests. Lucchese would later use John Johnny Dio Diaguardi as his leader of racketeering operations. Lucchese was really one of, if not the first mobster to really perfect labor racketeering and make it a humongous source of income for the mob. But in 1936, Lucky Luciano was sentenced to 30 to 50 years in prison for compulsory prostitution charges. Luciano continued to run his family from prison, initially using Vito Genovese as his acting boss, but Genovese fled to Italy in 1937, at which point Luciano appointed Frank Costello as his acting boss, and by this time the commission was ruled by an alliance of the Bonanno, Profaci, and Mangano families, as well as the Buffalo family led by Stefano Magadino. The group represented a more old school and conservative, and as well as a reserved style of doing business. Tommy Gagliano really had to be careful in the face of this alliance and went on to keep such an incredibly low profile to the point that not much is known about his life from 1932 until his death from natural causes in either 1951 or 1952. So as you may have noticed, he kept such a low profile that we're not even sure when he died. Gagliano began issuing orders to the family through Lucchese, and he essentially became the family's de facto street boss. It's also important to mention that by this time, Lucchese had begun mentoring a young hood named Anthony Corallo, who had become infamous in his own right, and really looked at him as his pupil. As a youth, Corallo joined the 107th Street gang that Lucchese and Luciano started as kids. The gang operated as one of the many farm teams for the mob. By 1935, Corallo became a member of the Gagliano family, and Lucchese put him in with Johnny Dio to get schooled in labor racketeering. On January 25, 1943, Lucchese finally gained his U.S. citizenship in Newark, New Jersey, but it would take him another seven years to secure a certificate of good standing which verifies that your business was legally formed and has been properly maintained. And in that same year, Lucchese made Anthony Corallo a capo and gave him his own crew, which is honestly pretty incredible, considering that Corallo at this point was only 30 years old, until you consider the fact that he was coming up huge in labor racketeering. Corallo and Johnny Dio eventually controlled five local chapters of the Teamsters and maintained an absolute stranglehold in the garment district. And by 1945, Lucchese began forming political connections. He backed Vincent Impelitari for city council president in 1945 and then for mayor in 1950. He also formed connections with future mayor William O'Dwyer. In 1946, in exchange for his assistance to the U.S. government during World War II, Lucky Luciano was released from prison on the condition that he be deported back to Italy. However, Luciano wasn't really ready to give up his power and he would hold a conference in Havana called the, well, the Havana Conference that included a plethora of Italian mob bosses from across the country. Casey attended the Havana Conference as Tommy Gagliano's representative However, things would soon take a turn for Lucchese. It's believed that Tommy Gagliano died on February 16, 1951. But there's a lot of speculation that this is just when he stepped down. But regardless, after over two decades of loyal service to Gagliano, Gagliano named Tommy Lucchese boss of the family, and he promptly changed the name to the Lucchese crime family, as it's still known today. He appointed Stefano LaSalle as his underboss and Vincenzo Rao as his consigliere. Soon after becoming boss, Lucchese formed an alliance with Vito Genovese and Carlo Gambino. Genovese was the underboss to Frank Costello, and Carlo Gambino was the underboss to Albert Anastasia, who were both absolute heavyweights in their own right. 
Lucchese formed this alliance with the longtime goal of gaining control of the commission, which was still controlled by the longtime alliance of the Bonanno, Profaci, and Magadino families. By this time, Lucchese was also a part owner of some downtown hotspots, including the Casino de Paris and the Music Hall. He was also known to be real friendly with guys like Jimmy Durant, Frank Sinatra, and Dean Martin. Unfortunately for Lucchese, though, federal authorities had been investigating him since his citizenship application was approved in 1943. And in September of 1952, after a 10-day search, Lucchese through his attorney yielded and he was called before the New York State Crime Commission for questioning. Lucchese maintained a tight-lipped demeanor and he was cryptic when he did answer questions. Before his testimony, Lucchese maintained his reputation as an upstanding businessman, and a garment district entrepreneur. But after he testified before the Senate committee, his ties to the criminal underworld were brought to light and many of his legitimate associates withdrew their support, much like what happened to Frank Costello after he testified in the Kefauver hearings. The Treasury agent reported, quote, Gaetano Lucchese has become as dangerous a character, if not more so, than Costello in his heyday, which is just an, an off-the-charts comparison if you know just how politically connected Costello was at the height of his power. However, despite this, Lucchese publicly maintained that he made his living above board, saying, quote, I make $100,000 a year with my dress factories. I got 1,500 people working for me. I give them all the fringe benefits, plus turkeys twice a year. If a girl has a baby, I give her a carriage or $50. If it's twins, the parents get a car. Triplets, I build them a house. But nobody's had twins or triplets yet. But the feds weren't done with him at all yet. And on November 17, 1952, U.S. Attorney General James McGranary initiated denaturalization proceedings against Lucchese to take away his citizenship. The government claimed that he didn't reveal his entire arrest record when applying for citizenship in the 1930s. However, the investigation did nothing to reduce Lucchese's power in the underworld. And by 1957, Lucchese and his recently formed alliance with Vito Genovese and Carlo Gambino were ready to make their move to gain control of the commission. On May 2, 1957, Costello survived an assassination attempt by Luciano family soldier Vincent Giganti on orders from Vito Genovese. Costello was shot once in the head but wasn't wounded, but he got the message and decided to relinquish power and live the rest of his life in retirement. Genovese immediately took control of the family and made Giganti a capo in exchange for his efforts. After Genovese took over as head of his own family, Lucchese and Gambino began conspiring to remove him. On October 25, 1957, Albert Anastasia was murdered inside the Park Sheraton Hotel, at which point Carlo Gambino soon took over the family. After Genovese took control of his family, he wanted to legitimize his control and establish himself as a boss, and organize the notoriously bad Appalachian meeting of all the mob bosses in the U.S. The meeting was held at the rural home of Joseph Barbara, who was a capo in the Magadino family. On November 14, 1957, New York State Police raided the meeting and arrested 61 gangsters who were fleeing on foot. However, good luck for Lucchese, he hadn't arrived yet and avoided arrest, but unfortunately his consigliere, Vincenzo Rao, had, was detained. On July 3, 1958, he was called to testify before the New York State Crime Commission once again. Lucchese again maintained that he had no affiliation with the Mafia. And then in 1959, Lucchese, along with Carlo Gambino, Lucky Luciano, and Frank Costello, allegedly lured Genovese into a drug-dealing scheme that ultimately resulted in his arrest. And on April 4th, 1959, 
Genovese was convicted of conspiracy to violate federal narcotics laws and 13 days later sentenced to 15 years in USP Atlanta. After being sent to prison, Genovese formed a ruling panel that included Thomas, Tommy Ryan, Eboli, Gerardo Catena, and Catena's protege, Philip Benny Squint Lombardo. But Vito Genovese still got the ultimate call within his family. This triumvirate would control the Genovese family until his death in 1961, at which point Philip Lombardo would become boss. Lucchese was now finally out from under the foot of an alliance that had ruled the commission really since Tommy Gagliano had become boss of the family. And by the early 60s, Lucchese had established connections at JFK Airport, and he exercised his control over airport management security and, and all the unions involved in the airport. His underlings began hijacking any cargo of value. In 1962, Carlo Gambino's oldest son, Thomas Gambino, married Lucchese's daughter, Frances, which strengthened the Gambino-Lucchese alliance. Over a thousand guests attended the wedding, and Carlo Gambino presented Lucchese with a $30,000 gift, and in return he gave Gambino a portion of his rackets at JFK Airport. Yet another good thing would happen for the two of them as well. They had been trying to get Joe Profaci removed as boss of his family by backing the Gallo crew in their war against Profaci, but on June 6, 1962, Joe Profaci died, which as bad as it sounds, was a good thing for Lucchese and Gambino, because Profaci was one of the last dominoes to fall in the old alliance that held sway over the commission for so long. However, a situation would soon arise for the two of them. For his death, Profaci named his second cousin and brother-in-law, Joseph Magliaccio, boss of the Profaci family. But despite that, he was refused a seat on the commission. They really didn't view him as a legitimate mob boss. And in 1963, Joe Bonanno began plotting to assassinate several of his rivals on the commission. He wanted to get rid of Tommy Lucchese, Carlo Gambino, his old friend Stefano Magadino, as well as Frank Simone, who was the boss of the Los Angeles family at the time. Bonanno basically went to Magliaccio and asked for his support in the plot, and he quickly agreed. Magliaccio was given the task of killing Lucchese and Gambino, at which point he gave the contract to one of his top capos, Joseph Colombo. However, Colombo saw an opportunity for advancement and went to Lucchese and Gambino to reveal the plot on their lives. The two quickly put together that Magliaccio didn't have the juice to pull off something like that by himself and quickly concluded that Bonanno was the real mastermind behind the plot. The commission summoned Magliaccio and Bonanno to explain themselves. Bonanno didn't show up to the meeting and went into hiding, leaving Magliaccio to fend for himself. Magliaccio, who was badly shaken and in poor health, confessed to his role in the plot. The commission decided to spare his life but forced him to retire as boss of the family and pay a $50,000 penalty. And as a reward for exposing the assassination plot, Joseph Colombo was slotted in as boss of the Profaci family and quickly changed his name to the Colombo family, which it still holds to this day. At age 41, Colombo was one of the youngest crime bosses in the entire country, but was also the first American-born boss of one of the five families. Lucchese and Gambino also used the commission to strip Joe Bonanno of his role as boss. Lucchese and Gambino now essentially had full control of the commission. However, in October 1963, Genovese family soldier Joseph Vellacci testified before the McClellan Committee on Organized Crime. Vellacci was convicted of narcotics violations in 1959 and sentenced to 15 years in prison. His motivations for becoming an informant are, are subject to some debate. Now, Vellacci claims he testified as a public service and to expose a powerful criminal organization that he blamed for ruining his life. But in my opinion, the much more likely scenario is that he was hoping for a plea bargain from the government where his sentence of the death penalty would be commuted to life imprisonment. Sounds 
much more practical. While in prison in 1962, Valachi became paranoid that Vito Genovese was trying to kill him after Genovese, who was also doing time on narcotics charges, became suspicious that Valachi was an informant and kissed him on the cheek, which Valachi somehow took as a kiss of death. And on June 22, 1962, Valachi bludgeoned an inmate to death on the yard, who he mistakenly took for Joseph Jobeck di Palermo, a close aide to Genovese, whom Valachi thought was hired to kill him. But unfortunately for Valachi, he killed a man named John Joseph Sapp, a forger with absolutely no ties to organized crime. In my opinion, it's much more likely that it was when he was facing down a charge of second-degree murder that he decided to cooperate with the government, as opposed to his more bullshit excuse of it being a public service. Before the Valachi hearings, federal authorities had no concrete evidence that the American Mafia even existed. But one of the most infamous mob rats in Mafia history essentially gave the entire rundown of the Mafia. He provided details of its history, structure, operations, as well as rituals. He exposed the fact that soldiers were organized into crews led by a lieutenant or capo, with each crew representing a geographic area. He exposed the commission and its function in the Mafia, and provided the names of the original bosses of the five families, as well as the current five at the time of his testimony. His testimony resulted in the prosecution of several high-ranking mobsters, but also caused Congress to pass new laws to strengthen federal racketeering and gambling statutes. After the Valachi hearings, Lucchese was questioned by the Nassau County District Attorney about Valachi-related allegations. When asked if he was a member of the Mafia, Lucchese replied, quote, Valachi's crazy. I know nothing about any Cosa Nostra. The only thing I belong to is the Knights of Columbus. Just, just, his responses to some of these questions are the reason I fucking love this guy. However, sadly, in early August of 1965, Lucchese checked into Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center with a brain tumor and a heart ailment. A year later, he became hospitalized, and the commission began dividing up his rackets. Soon, Tommy Lucchese, who was by this time aging and frail, returned to his home in the Lido Beach area of Long Island on April 11, 1967. Tragically, he died in his home on July 13, 1967, at the age of 67. At the time of his death, Tommy Lucchese hadn't served a single second in jail in 44 years. Lucchese left his family in an extremely powerful position within the five families. The family had a stronghold in East Harlem in the Bronx and consisted of about 200 made members. His funeral service was held at Our Lady of the Miraculous Metal Church in Point Lookout, Long Beach. Over a thousand mourners, including politicians, judges, policemen, racketeers, and hitmen attended the ceremony. Undercover police officers photographed those in attendance. Lucchese was laid to rest at the Calvary Cemetery in Masbeth, Queens. It has the largest number of burials of any cemetery in the U.S. with over 3 million, including other infamous mobsters like Giuseppe Morello, Joe Masseria, Dominic Sonny Black Napolitano, and Natalie Evola. And that is the end of at least the history that specifically pertains to Tommy Lucchese, but I also did want to go a bit in-depth into why, in current day, the Lucchese family isn't as powerful as they once were. Granted, I know that none of the five families are as powerful as they once were, but today, the Genovese and Gambino families are still really at the very top of, I guess, the five families' hierarchy. And there, there's a reason for that. Because I would say that at this time, or, or shall I say during the time that Tommy Lucchese was alive, I would argue that the Lucchese family was more powerful than the Genovese family, 
and even rivaled Carlo Gambino's power. Maybe that's controversial, I think it's justified. But despite that, today, the Genovese and Gambino families are really at the top of that hierarchy. I wanted to really explain to people why that is, because it was, it was a slow progression with many steps that really led to, not necessarily the downfall, but, but really, like, I guess the demotion of the Lucchese family within the five families. Lucchese's obvious first choice for successor after his, before his death was his protege, Anthony Tony Dux Corallo. However, on December 18, 1967, Corallo was indicted on charges of receiving a kickback payment from a contractor for the renovation of the Jerome Park Reservoir in the Bronx. And on July 26, 1968, Corallo was sentenced to three years in federal prison. While Corallo was in prison, the commission tapped Carmen Tremonti to be the acting boss of the Lucchese family until Corallo's release. Some sources even claim Carlo Gambino allegedly used his influence to make Tremonti boss, while others say Tremonti appealed to different factions within the family. However, Tremonti spent most of his time as boss fighting convictions and indictments. However, Corallo was released from prison in 1970. Historians have speculated that upon his release, Tremonti was used as a front boss for Corallo for the next three years. And on October 4th, 1973, Tremonti and 43 others were indicted on charges of narcotics trafficking stemming from his involvement in the French Connection heroin smuggling ring. On May 7th, 1973, Tremonti was sentenced to 15 years in federal prison, at which point Anthony Corallo became the indisputable boss of the Lucchese family. He appointed Salvatore Tom Mick Santoro as the underboss and supervisor of all labor racketeering construction operations for the family. He also tapped Christopher Christy Tick Fanari as the consigliere. And just like Lucchese before him, he would lead the family through another very successful, almost golden age-like period. He took control of the gravel industry as well as trucking and construction unions in New York. During his tenure, he also took over the garbage industry and gained more power at JFK Airport. Like I said, Corallo's time as boss was really a golden era for the family. However, the decline of the Lucchese family and the reason that it isn't as powerful today as the Genovese or Gambino families began on February 25th, 1985, when Corallo was indicted along with other top mob leaders in the commission trial. Among his defendants were his underboss Salvatore Santoro and his consigliere Christopher Fernari. Corallo put his protege Anthony Luongo as acting boss in early 1986, However, around December of that same year, Luongo disappeared. It's rumored that Lucchese family mobster Victor Amuso, who was Luongo's driver and bodyguard, took part in his murder to remove his last major obstacle in his way of becoming boss. His close friend Anthony Casso assisted in the murder. And by late 1986, Corallo realized that he, Santoro, and Fernari were headed for convictions that would send them to prison for the rest of their natural lives. He wanted to avoid internal conflict and maintain the family's long-standing tradition of a peaceful transfer of power. While awaiting trial, a meeting was held at Fernari's home where Corallo told Fernari that he wanted the capo of Fernari's old crew, Victor Amuso, or Fernari's close aide, Anthony Casso, to be his successor. Fernari, Amuso, and Casso met in a separate room, where Casso turned down the promotion in favor of Amuso, who ultimately took control of the family. But neither of them were good options in any shape or form. While they were both great, you know, solid earners and genuinely Cosa Nostra guys, 
They were both fucking lunatics, as I'll explain to you soon. Amusu became the official boss of the family on January 13, 1987, when, when Anthony Corallo was sentenced to 100 years in prison as well as a $240,000 fine. Victor Amusu named Mariano Macaluso as his underboss, and Anthony Casso became his consigliere. Amusa's time in power would see many, many internal conflicts within the family that broke down the unity and loyalty of its members. Amuso and Caso just, they, they ordered way too many murders, and those in the family who weren't dead were scared they'd be next. However, on May 30th, 1990, Amuso and Caso were indicted as part of the infamous Windows case. The two immediately went to hiding and Amuso named Alphonse Little Al Diarco as acting boss. However, Lucchese family capo, Fat Peter Chiodo, was charged with violations of the RICO Act. Chiodo decided he was going to plead guilty for a lighter sentence, which was highly against the mob rules. Amuso and Caso were angry about the guilty plea and uncertain of Chiodo's loyalty. The two ordered little Al Diarco to kill Chiodo. And on May 8th, 1991, three gunmen shot Chiodo 12 times. But he survived as bad as it sounds, due to his massive size. However, a few weeks later, a hit team nearly killed Chiodo's sister. Following the assassination attempt, Chiodo decided that he was going to become a government witness. By this point, it was clear that Caso and Amusa were fucking losing their minds. The two of them crafted a list of 49 people that they wanted dead, half of whom were Lucchese family members themselves. They even ordered the family's entire New Jersey faction killed after they refused to increase the family's share of their profits. Diarco knew that Amuso and Caso blamed him for the failed hit on Chiodo and believed they were waiting to kill him. In July 1991, Amuso and Caso replaced Diarco as acting boss with a four-man panel of capos. Diarco was named to the panel, but it was obvious Amuso and Caso no longer trusted him. On July 29, 1991, FBI agents captured Vic Amuso at a suburban mall outside Scranton, Pennsylvania. Then on September 18, 1991, Diarco attended a meeting of Lucchese leaders where he quickly realized something was off and he assumed that he was going to be killed. He quickly escaped and the next day he decided to flee town and become an informant. At the time, he was the highest-ranking member of a New York crime family to testify against the mob until Bonanno boss Joseph Messino flipped in 2004. On October 9, 1992, Amuso was sentenced to life imprisonment. Amuso still tried to pull strings for the family, and before he was sent away, he promoted Lucchese family capo Joseph DeFed to acting boss with the help of a ruling panel that included Lucchese family mobsters Stephen Crea, Anthony Barada, Sal Avellino, and consigliere Frank Lastarino. And then on January 19, 1993, Anthony Casso was arrested while coming out of the shower of his mistress's house in Mount Olive, New Jersey. By the time Casso was arrested, Amuso had come to believe that Casso had tipped off the FBI in hopes of seizing the title of boss for himself. In late 1993, Amuso removed Casso as underboss and declared that all Lucchese members should consider him a pariah. As a result of his exile and him facing the prospect of a trial where Little Al Diarco and Peter Chiodo were two to be star witnesses, Casso reached out to the FBI and decided to become an informant. But in 1998, Casso was removed from the witness protection program due to multiple infractions including bribing guards, assaulting other inmates, and giving false statements about Diarco as well as Gambino mobster Sammy Gravano. And in July of 1998, 
Anthony Casso was sentenced to 455 years in prison without the possibility of parole. Then on April 28, 1998, Joseph DeFed, the acting boss of the family, was indicted on nine counts of racketeering stemming from his supervision of the family's operations in the garment district. DeFed pled guilty to the charges and received five years in prison. Amuso, for whatever reason, became uncertain of DeFed's loyalty and began regarding him as a traitor. After DeFed's imprisonment in 1998, Amuso handpicked Bronx faction leader Stephen Crea to be the new acting boss of the family. Crea began sending a larger amount of the family's profits to Amuso, which convinced Amuso that DeFed had been skimming from the profits the whole time he was acting boss. And in late 1999, Amuso decided to put out a contract on DeFed's life. Then on September 6, 2000, Stephen Crea and seven other Lucchese members were arrested on extortion charges. Crea was convicted in 2001 and sentenced to five years in prison. Upon Crea's imprisonment, influential conciliary Louis Dadone was promoted to acting boss of the family. Didone was one of the strongest and most dangerous members of the family at the time and continued to oversee the contract on DeFed's life. However, during DeFed's imprisonment, he didn't know there was a contract on him, but Amuso demoted him from capo to soldier, which really alerted him to the possibility that he fell out of favor with Amuso and that he was in danger. And upon his release on February 5th, 2002, DeFed immediately turned to the government and became an informant. Federal witnesses Little Al Diarco and Joseph DeFed provided information regarding Lucchese-controlled racketeering operations based around New York, which helped the government de decimate what remained of the old Amuso faction. The two also provided information about rackets such as gambling, loan sharking, extortion, and even information regarding old unsolved murders, which led to the indictments of the mob cops Louis Eppolito and Stephen Caracapa. In 2003, the Lucchese family would fall even deeper into their pit. Acting boss Louis Didone received a life sentence for racketeering and murder charges, while more than a dozen prominent Lucchese family members were sent to prison in the same year on various charges. After the arrest and conviction of Louis Didone, Amuso instituted a ruling panel of influential capos to run the family. Prominent and senior capos Neil Migliore, Matthew Madonna, and Joseph DiNapoli were handpicked by Amuso to lead the family. In February 2004, a New York Post article stated that the Lucchese family consisted of about 9 capos and 82 soldiers. However, in 2006, former acting boss Stephen Crea was released from prison and the ruling panel continued to run day-to-day -day activities of the family. But then in December 2007, another huge hit would strike the family when panel members Madonna and D Joseph DiNapoli were arrested on labor racketeering, illegal gambling, and extortion charges, stemming from an investigation called Operation Heat that revealed that the New Jersey faction of the family controlled a $2.2 billion illegal gambling, money laundering, and racketeering ring based in New Jersey and Costa Rica. And in October 2009, the Lucchese family was hit with two separate indictments charging 49 members with bribery and racketeering charges. After the ruling panel was absolutely decimated by indictments, it was finally disbanded. Matthew Madonna took over as acting boss, and Joseph DiNapoli became consigliere. In late 2009, the parole restrictions on Stephen Cree expired, and he immediately became underboss of the family. However, on October 1st, 2009, Madonna was indicted along with DiNapoli and 27 others in a large racketeering scheme. The indictment stated that Madonna was a key player in a vast operation that grossed approximately $400 million from illegal gambling, loan sharking, gun trafficking, and extortion. 
And on June 28, 2010, Madonna and other defendants pled not guilty to the charges from the 2007 racketeering case. As of 2014, Vicamusa remains the official boss of the Lucchese family, although he is currently still serving out his life sentence at FCI Cumberland. Mob writer Selwyn Robb writes, quote, Amuso's bloodthirsty tactics resulted in the loss of more than half of the family's made members, either as a result of being killed, imprisoned, or turning informant. Which I honestly could not agree with more. That's really what I meant when I say that Amuso and Casso ruined this family. And I think that if Anthony Corallo was able to choose between either Salvatore Santoro or Christopher Fanari, the family would be in a much much different spot than it is today. But we're also going to talk about something really interesting. The Lucchese family was also responsible for the last legitimate sanctioned mob hit. Matthew Madonna ordered the hit on Michael Meldish that was carried out on November 15th, 2013. Michael Meldish was the former leader of the East Harlem Purple Gang. The Purple Gang controlled narcotics trafficking in Harlem and the Bronx throughout the 70s and 80s, and carried out some especially gruesome murders committed to advance their own interests, as well as some on the behalf of the five families. They rose to power in the drug game when they filled the power vacuum left by the French Connection case and later Nicky Barnes, and people really started thinking there might be a sixth family in New York, that's how powerful they were. Meldish himself was suspected to be involved in 10 hits. Prominent members of the Purple Gang included Genovese acting boss Daniel Leo, Bonanno boss Michael Mancuso, and Matthew Madonna himself. However, the Purple Gang really disintegrated in the early 80s, with its members and associates being split up between the Genovese, Lucchese, and Bonanno families. By 2010, Michael Meldish and his friend from his Purple Gang days, Terrence Caldwell, were Lucchese associates with Stephen Crea Jr.'s crew based in the Bronx. Bonanno family informant Anthony Zoccolio testified that Meldish, Caldwell, and Lucchese soldier Christopher Londonia were involved in drug trafficking as well as a series of armed robberies in the Bronx. However, around 2012, Meldish really just began acting out of pocket. He began an affair with the girlfriend of Bonanno boss, Michael Mancuso which I don't have to tell you how stupid that is, and as a result was the target of a vicious beating by Bonanno soldier Ernest Aiello outside Rao's Italian restaurant as a warning to just stay the fuck away. But in retaliation, Meldish targeted Bonanno soldier Enzo Stagno and decided to do an unsanctioned shooting of a made man in another family with his friend Terence Caldwell, which we all know is a huge violation of mob rules. In East Harlem, on January 1st, 2013, Caldwell shot and wounded Stagno, but Meldish got cold feet and bailed on Caldwell at the scene, leaving him to run and be caught on CCTV footage around where the shooting occurred. Also around this time, Meldish had taken a $100,000 loan from acting boss Matthew Madonna and soon began refusing to pay it back, essentially telling Madonna to fuck off, which set in motion the hit on Michael Meldish. The order supposedly came down to Stephen Crea, then to Crea Jr., who tasked Terence Caldwell and soldier Christopher Londonio with carrying out the hit. Caldwell shot Meldish in the head while he was sitting in his car in front of his house in the Throgneck section of the Bronx on November 17, 2013. Londonia acted as a getaway driver using his own fucking car which was seen fleeing the scene on CCTV footage. They had also called Meldish in the lead-up to the hit, not to mention that Caldwell's DNA was found in the car. I, the best way to put it is that they tried to do a 1980s hit 
in 2013. And in wiretap recordings obtained from Lucchese family associate Robert Spinelli, Lucchese soldier Joseph Totello confessed that he owed money to Madonna and was rushing to pay it back to avoid a similar fate to Meldish. Another Lucchese associate said, quote, Maddie told me to stay away from him and mentioned the feud between Meldish and Madonna. On June 17, 2015, Matthew Madonna agreed to plead guilty in the 2007 racketeering indictment and was sentenced to five years in prison on September 30th. However, before his release, on May 31st, 2017, 19 members and associates of the Lucchese family were indicted and charged by the FBI and NYPD on a slew of charges including racketeering, attempted murder, witness tampering, and money laundering. The entire Lucchese family ruling body would be decimated yet again by the indictment, reminiscent of what happened almost exactly to Anthony Corallo in the commission trial. Matthew Madonna, Stephen Crea, and Joseph DiNapoli were among the accused. Terrence Caldwell and Christopher Londonio were accused of participating in the shooting and murder of Michael Meldish. Stephen Crea and his son, Stephen Crea Jr., were charged and suspected of serving as co-conspirators in the Meldish hit. Following the indictments, there would be somewhat of a rebellion in the Lucchese family. While on the street, Madonna and Crea ran the family from their headquarters in the Bronx, making the Bronx the family's center of power. But after the indictment, several capos based in Brooklyn had really had enough of the Bronx leadership and began complaining about Madonna and Crea to the 85-year-old Victor Amuso, who is still imprisoned for life. In May of 2019, a government witness and former Lucchese soldier John Panisi testified against Eugene Castell and revealed the current leadership of the family. He stated that in 2017, imprisoned boss Vicka Musso sent a letter to underboss Stephen Creo, which stated that Brooklyn-based mobster Michael Big Mike DeSantis would take over as acting boss, replacing the Bronx-based Matthew Madonna. And despite being locked up, Amuso's word was still law on the streets, and Madonna and Crea immediately stepped down, clearing the way for Michael DeSantis to become the new boss. DeSantis used to be one of Amuso and Castle's favorite hitmen and was the one who he tasked with the hit on Lil Al Diarco. And unlike many mobsters in the modern day, he took a pinch when Diarco began informing and was sentenced to 21 years in prison, being released in 2010, really a rare stand-up guy in the mob these days. Testimony from Panisi stated that if the Bronx faction refused to step aside, Amuso had approved of a hit list that included a captain and several members of the Bronx faction. Panisi also revealed that the Lucchese family operates with a total of seven crews, with two in the Bronx, two on Long Island, one in Manhattan, one in New Jersey, and one in Staten Island. On November 15, 2019, Matthew Madonna, Stephen Crea, Christopher Londonia, and Terrence Caldwell were all convicted in federal court of murdering Michael Meldish, and on July 27, 2020, Madonna, Londonia, and Caldwell were sentenced to life in prison, and on August 27, 2020, Crea was sentenced to life in prison as well as a fine of $400,000 and the forfeit of $1 million. Currently, the Lucchese family is led by a ruling body headed by Michael DeSantis as boss, as well as Patrick Patty Delarusso as his underboss. Delarusso used to be part of Paul Vario's crew and handled the Lucchese family's rackets at JFK Airport. Andrew DeSimone was named Consigliere. The Lucchese family has been decimated by indictments in the last 30 years and has been through five different acting bosses as well as four ruling panos just since Vic Amuso went away, with two of the acting bosses eventually becoming informants. But in spite of that, they still operate with seven crews and are involved in extortion, loan sharking, racketeering, and gambling. And at least in my opinion, I think the family is in good hands with DeSantis and Delarusso. They're both old school guys who have served time for the family, 
Although with informants like John Panisi testifying against anyone at any time, it could be it could just be a matter of time until the ruling body of the family is once again decimated by indictments. But that's really all I have for you guys today. I hope that you thoroughly enjoyed the show today. I really tried to put a lot of effort into this episode. I really am such a huge fan of Tommy Lucchese and what he did throughout his career. I think he lived a super interesting life. And I hope you guys thought so as well. And I hope you tune in next week where we'll talk about one of the most heavyweight organized crime members that maybe have ever lived in Pablo Escobar. But with that being said, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. If you want to support the podcast, it would be so great if you could follow, like, and share the podcast as well as the podcast Instagram and Twitter page at the Black Hand Pod. With that being said, I hope you all have a great rest of your day and come back and join me next Wednesday when we talk about Pablo Escobar. This is your host, Bliss Grieve, signing out.